welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. President Trump continues to ratchet up his rhetoric on immigration policy, tweeting that illegal immigrants should be sent back without an appearance before a judge without due process. At the same time, his critics are calling for due process for detainees. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren spoke to reporters after visiting detainees at a border control center in McAllen, Texas. When a woman comes here with her four-year-old son and says, I am asking for amnesty, I have been threatened by gangs in my home country. We should at least give her a hearing. Joining me is Rick Sue, professor at Syracuse University and an expert in immigration law. Rick, under U.S. law and the international treaties that we are party to, can Trump just turn away immigrants at the border without a hearing of any kind? Uh, not if they're making a credible claim for asylum. Um, and many of these Central Americans who are coming are, in fact, uh, here to make that particular claim. Under those obligations, they deserve at least a pre-screening, and if they pass that, a hearing on their particular claim. Tell us about due process and whether due process applies to immigrants. So this is actually quite interesting. Uh, it's a topic that's been debated a lot, but there actually is already a process by which Congress has authorized the president to remove individuals without having to go through a judge or a hearing. That's assuming that there isn't an asylum claim. And in fact, that's been used since 1996. Um, the irony of his statement, Trump's statement, is actually the reason why there is so much more hearings than judges now is because of the zero tolerance policy, is because he said that he wants to criminally prosecute everyone that comes other than just to remove them. Uh, so it's not clear what, if he really is just interested in a removal, then zero tolerance seems to go against that. If he wants to criminally prosecute other than remove them, give them prison time, that's why we're talking about judges and hearings. Can he do that by executive order or does he need Congress to act? So Congress right now already has something called expedited removal, and that was passed in 1996. That allows him, under certain circumstances, uh, to remove individuals without being subject to a hearing or appearance before a judge. Um, now, if they were to remove them, that wouldn't be criminal prosecution. There'd be no prison time there. Um, and in fact, that's been used for quite a while. There are some people who say that itself may be a due process violation, but no court has found that to be the case. Um, if there was an asylum claim made, however, then Congress would have to change that. Uh, and actually, it's not clear they could either because of our international obligations. Uh, but in some ways, what he's complaining about is, again, something of his own making. It's the zero tolerance policy uh, that is coming against his use of expedited removal, which is just for removal, not for prosecution. People who are following this are often hearing one case named the Flores Consent Decree. Tell us about that and, and what that requires. So the Flores Consent Degree essentially is about the treatment of children who are in U.S. custody. Um, it was applied uh, up until this point primarily for unaccompanied minors, people, children who came without parents at all. Uh, it was only recently that the argument was made that if we were to take children away from their parents, then they become unaccompanied, and therefore the Flores Agreement comes into play. Uh, but the Flores Agreement by itself essentially is about not uh, the conditions of custody for children 
and it strongly favors releasing them either to a sponsor or to a parent and not keep them in custody while their claims are being heard. Um, and that's why it's coming up right now is about whether or not uh, they need to be uh, sort of released, uh, especially when the administration wants to keep the parents in jail uh, pending criminal prosecution. Tell, tell me about what the proceedings have been before um, a federal district judge, Dolly G about the Flores decision. So, sorry. Yeah. So essentially what the Obama administration had tried to do or thought when there was the surge of accompanying minors coming with their parents uh, was to try to maintain many of them in some sort of uh, family uh, detention facility. Um, but that when this particular – the Flores Agreement was a long time ago, right? So this is uh, in the 1990s. Uh, Essentially, what the recent judge said is that even for these individuals who are accompanied, the Flores Agreement still applies. And therefore, what the floor, this particular ruling on the Flores Agreement said uh, was that children really should be released, uh, hopefully, ideally, uh, within 20 days uh, and not be kept in detention while they wait their proceeding. Um, and that's essentially what Obama did towards the latter years of his uh, uh, administration. Uh, and that drew the ire of this idea of catch and release. Rick, we're learning a lot about some of the children who have been held before Trump became president and um, and the conditions that they've been held. And there are a lot of allegations. Tell us what what you know and uh, where where this stands right now. Yeah. So one thing that Obama confronted, which Trump is confronting now, is that it's very difficult to ramp up uh, detention uh, capacity and capabilities. And there were a lot of allegations under the Obama administration that the facilities that they set up for it were uh, inadequate, that there were uh, uh, all sorts of concerns about the conditions themselves, allegations of abuse, um, and and the like. Um, now, uh, there were a little bit of a difference with regard to facilities that were set up for immediate detention. This was done by Department of Homeland Security, and of course, the facilities handled by Office of Refugee Resettlement. Those are a little bit different, but both have been alleged to be inadequate in their own way. Um, that is essentially why the Obama administration ultimately concluded that the expense and the difficulty of doing this uh, could be alleviated by, alle- by releasing certain individuals out uh, if there's some assurance that they would show up for a hearing. Uh, it seems like the zero tolerance policy and the approach of the Trump administration is to go back to that particular stance of trying to keep them in detention and maybe doing family separation as well. Um, and essentially, they're confronting the same problem that the Obama administration confronted, but just in a much larger scale. So what? who is, who is suing um, for these children right now who are still being held in, in these facilities? So there's a lot of different immigration attorneys that are involved in this, uh, representing specific individual clients. Um, and there are civil rights uh, organizations representing a group of them uh, that are challenging this. Um, and really all the focus right now is, uh, well, a lot of the focus right now is on trying to clarify the uh, limits of the Flores Agreement and how that would apply, uh, and more generally, uh, lobbying Congress to uh, do something or impose some sort of requirement on what needs to be done in this case. Congress has acted on this issue on several occasions, uh, though not this particular situation, because it's, I don't think it was anticipated that it would come to this. Rick, just about a minute here, but you know we've talked a lot about the children being reunited with their parents, children who were taken away. Is, is that more a logistical problem now than a legal problem? Uh, it's a little bit of 
both. Um, certainly, there's a logistical problem, and that is just the coordination between all the various agencies ramping up all the information collecting. It's a bureaucratic nightmare, and I think we're getting reports of that. Uh, but there is a legal issue here as well, because it's not clear after the reunification what's going to happen. Um, the Trump administration has been very unclear of whether or not they're going to still stick with the zero tolerance policy, which means criminal prosecution. But if they're going to criminally prosecute, then these individuals won't be released. So that would potentially mean detention for both parents and children in a different facility. All right. Thanks um, so much, Rick. This is a really complicated issue, and we appreciate your insight. That's Rick Sue, a professor at Syracuse University Law School. American Express won a major victory at the Supreme Court today. In a 5-4 to four ruling, the court threw out a lawsuit by the federal government in more than a dozen states, accusing Amex of thwarting competition with its policy. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. So, Greg, tell us about this decision. Hi, June. Yeah, this is a case where um, the federal government and what are now 11 states were suing American Express, saying that the policy they have uh, thwarts competition. And what the policy did was it said, uh, what does is it, it says to merchants, you cannot, if you're going to accept our card, you cannot try to steer customers to another credit card that charges you lower fees. So the merchant can't say, hey, pay pay for your purchase with this other card and we'll give you um, a discount customer. Uh, the Supreme Court today, throughout this lawsuit, said the government uh, had focused too much on the impact on merchants and hadn't shown that there was actually any negative impact on the ultimate consumers. Why did this case divide the court along ideological lines? Is it just the business angle? It, it, it's a good question. Antitrust cases do this sometimes, um, not not always. Uh, Justice Breyer wrote wrote a dissenting opinion, um, and it, it, it's you know basically just just um, uh, different views on whether uh, a business practice uh, might actually be harming competition. That's the kind of thing that. Um, Liberals and Democratic appointees have a tendency to be quicker to say, uh, yes, there is harm uh, to competition, and that's what happened here. Does this, does this case have any implications for the tech industry? It, it, it might well. So there was a lot of concern among consumer advocates that if the court did what it ultimately ended up, ended up doing here, uh, 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 throwing out the suit, allowing this American Express policy, that it can make it harder to sue um, uh, high-tech companies as well. And basically, the, 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 what this whole thing is about is what are known as two-sided markets, where you have two transactions that are going on that are closely connected to each other. In American Express's case, it's uh, with a merchant and with a customer. And um, you, those kinds of two-sided markets happen a lot in the tech industry. So, for example, Uber is dealing both with the driver and with the passenger. And uh, the concern among uh, consumer advocates and their, their concern today is that this ruling will make it much, much harder to challenge a company like Uber if uh, there's, there are some indications that they are thwarting competition one way or another. So, Greg, there was another gerrymandering decision which promises to be controversial as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, so the court uh, ruled in a Texas case 
that uh, where a lower court had said that uh, Republican lawmakers in te- Texas had intentionally discriminated on the basis of race in drawing districts. Now, it's a little, and the court again divided five to four uh, with the conservatives in the majority. This was a little bit of an unusual case because Texas's defense was um, the districts we drew were actually ones that a court in an earlier phase of this litigation had put in place uh, as interim maps. And even if you now think that those districts are, um, are, are potentially discriminatory, you can't find us to have in- intentionally discriminated if all we were doing was using a map that apparently a court thought was good enough to, to, to be put in place on an interim basis. The Supreme Court today agreed with Republicans and uh, with one minor exception, one small exception, said that these two challenged maps, one for the state legislature, one for, for Congress, uh, could stand. So, Judge uh, Greg, was it the was it the facts of this case? Does the Supreme Court still stand for the fact that, you know, partisan racial gerrymandering is against the law, but it didn't happen in this case? Or does it not stand for that anymore? Yeah, no, no, no it's still, racial gerrymandering can still be a problem. And the reason I say can and not necessarily is, is that because you have the Voting Rights Act in the background, which sometimes requires people to, to think about race when they're drawing districts, because the Voting Rights Act, among other things, is designed to ensure that uh, minorities don't get uh, blocked out of, of being able to, to elect, uh, elect uh, people uh, of their choosing. Um, so you know, there are always some, there's always some ability to, to use race, but here in this case, the Supreme Court uh, made it much harder to sue, in particular, um, with more likely to be a Republican legislature for doing things that, that in the views of the, those who sued, uh, actually made it harder for minorities to elect uh, somebody of their choosing. About a minute here. Tell us about what happened in the North Carolina case. Yeah, so this is a partisan gerrymandering case, not racial gerrymandering. And, and last week, we recall the court uh, basically punted in a couple big partisan gerrymandering cases, refused to decide whether you could ever ha- have a district that was so uh, partisan that it was unconstitutional. Uh, there's another case involving North Carolina uh, court throughout Republican-drawn districts. Today, the Supreme Court uh, basically kicked that case back, said take another look at it. Ultimately, I think it will get back up to the Supreme Court probably at the end of next term. All right, Greg. Well, breathe deeply. Tomorrow we're going to be checking in with you again because the court is going to be issuing more opinions coming up. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. One of the opinions that we're waiting for, of course, is the opinion on the Trump travel ban, which has gone up to the Supreme Court, as well as the opinion on mandatory union fees. That will be coming up this week as the court nears the end of its term this week. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.